0: We're continuing tonight in our series called Practice Resurrection on Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. And the question that we're going to consider tonight as we look at this text uh, is what is the church and how am I to relate to it? Now I don't know if any of you have ever been given something that you didn't know what it was. But uh, many of you know that we're an Anglican church underneath Rwandan leadership, so in Africa... And when Mandy and I were down in D.C., we had some Rwand- a Rwandan priest and his wife stay with us, and they gave us a gift, a housewarming gift, and it looked like a gavel. Some of you have seen this at my house, uh, with a little screw in it. And I had no idea what this was, uh, so it just kind of sat on the bookshelf for a year. And then the, the year, a year later, I took a trip to Rwanda with the church that we were part of in D.C., and I suddenly saw the gift that had been given to me being used by all these Rwandans to open their soda, their soda bottles, like their, their pop bottles, whatever you want to call it. It was a can opener, and I didn't know it was a can opener. So when I came back from Rwanda, I put it to good use. Not always on soda, but to good use nonetheless. And, uh, and, and I was able to properly relate to this thing. And I want to give you that as a, a way of thinking about these two questions. So what is the church, and then how do I relate to it? Because the church is this thing. And I imagine that if you've been around the church for any length of time, that you've got your sense of what the church is. You've sort of defaulted into some understanding of that. And when we understand what something is, then we can have some kind of relationship to it. And our understanding of that thing affects the way that we, we relate to it. And if you do have a default understanding, I want to encourage you as we look at this text to let that be challenged through this text tonight. Now you might be here and this is new for you. The church is a new thing for you or you're investigating it. And I want to say to you as well that um, thinking and listening and hearing about what the church actually is, is a very helpful thing in your shoes because you can consider, especially at the beginning on your way in, about well, what does it mean to be a part of it? What does it mean to relate to it? Because it's easy to sit here and go okay well I know it we we can kind of observe the church if you look around for a second you're looking at the church this isn't the church this is the church building. The church is a bunch of people and those people gather together and they gather uh, and they they sing songs those songs generally are are directed to God they read from this ancient text that we call the Bible Uh, they pray we we hear a sermon we come to the Lord's table and take communion we We meet together throughout the city during the week in neighborhood groups. Um, We we live life together. We talk about doing that. We go on mission together. We have a staff here. We have uh, a website. We have a logo. We have all kinds of things. I mean, you could observe all these things, but that doesn't really tell you what the church is. So that's the question. So what is the church, even though I can observe all these different things, and then how do I relate to it? And what I want to do is set out pretty quickly five, we'll see how quick it is, five key points that this text teaches us about the church and then ask in applying that. So what does that mean about how we relate to it? And I'll try to keep that relatively straightforward. So five key points that this text teaches about the church. The first thing is that the church is governed, nourished, sustained, and animated by Jesus, by the risen and victorious King. In verse 16, you'll see that it refers, that Paul refers to Jesus as the head of the church. Or sorry, verse 15. That we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body is joined and held together, and so on. The church is a body with one head. That's the first thing that we learn. This head being Jesus in a position of preeminence, And of authority over this community. Governs and rules this community. And this is important. It's important to say this. Because when you walk into the church. You don't see Jesus in the flesh. You see different people doing different things. Often you'll see one pastor or priest leading that community. And it might be easy to forget this point about the church. But all of these people. Whatever it is that they're doing. Have a large or small or public or not public, their role is in this community, all of them, whatever they're doing, are serving a different person. That person being Jesus, the ultimate authority and head in the church. And Jesus isn't just the head of the body, but he's also the victorious leader. And Paul gets on with this. I, didn't, I wasn't able to fit. I took out verses 8 through 10. But Paul gets on to this with this interesting reference to Psalm 68, where he says that... that um, Christ ascended on high and led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68 is a divine warrior psalm. It's a psalm about how God basically defeats his enemies and creates a worshiping community that can worship him and come to life under his bountiful care and protection and provision. And Paul's applying that psalm and its divine warrior narrative to Jesus that through his descent, that is down to the depths of the cross and the humiliation of the cross, and then his subsequent resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand, which Paul speaks about at the end of chapter 1, that God placed him at his right hand above all all rule and power and authority, above everything, that Jesus is now the victorious one, the king who rules over his people. And Paul applies that idea of Jesus being the victorious one who reigns over the church. So the church is a body that has one head who is a victorious king. That's the first thing. The second thing that we learn about the church from this text is that the church is full of people, all of whom who have been given gifts by this victorious king. Picture of Psalm 68 again is that the king has defeated his enemies and collected the bounty from his military conquest. And now he begins to distribute that bounty to those who have been attached to him. And that's the exact picture that Paul gives us here. These gifts have been given. It says in verse 7, this is the controlling verse of this whole text, "But, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Of Christ's gift. Paul in verse 11 refers to five specific gifts. And I'll come back to those in a second. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But the point is broader than that. This isn't an exhaustive list. Elsewhere in four other places in the New Testament. Paul speaks about different kinds of gifts. There are over 20 gifts that are mentioned. And none of those are meant to be exhaustive. But the main point is is that the king. The victorious king is distributing his bounty. His grace. To all of us who make up the church. And the super important point of this is nobody's left out. There's nobody who hasn't been given a gift. According to the measure of Christ's gift. That is a bountiful measure. A gracious measure. No one's been looked over. All of us are able to participate in the king's bounty. And these gifts were given for a reason. And this is still under the second point. But these gifts weren't given for us to be selfish with them. These gifts weren't given for us to create an identity or to create security for ourselves. As we're so prone to do. But they were given to participate in God's work in the world. In this victorious king's ongoing work in the world. They were given for us to have a part to play in that. So verse 12 that these gifts, particularly these five gifts, were given to equip the saints for the work of ministry or for partnership in God's service. We've been given gifts to partner together. And also, these gifts were given to build up this one body. And that's the sort of deeper purpose here of the gifts. Not to build myself up, but to build each other up. That's why we were given gifts Third thing to say about the church from this text. So the church has, is a body united under a head. The church is made up of people who've been given gifts by that king for a purpose. The third thing to say is that the church is a group of people in which some people have been given gifts and called and set apart and ordained in our Anglican 39 articles. This is article 23 for those of you who care about that. Um, who've been called and ordained to administer the word of God to the community. All five of the gifts that Paul mentions in verse 11... ...apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers... ...are associated with the proclamation of the word of God. This is an incredibly important part of the identity of the church. If we're describing this entity of what is the church. It's a people who are united under the word. And the word is so important that God has chosen to give some in the community... To steward that word. So you think in Acts chapter 6, at the beginning of the church's life, the apostles say, look, we're not going to get caught up in giving uh, giving out things to the the needy widows. That's important. The church needs to do that. So we're going to set aside deacons to do that. But we're going to remain committed to the ministry of the word and to prayer. It's an important ministry because the purpose of this ministry of the word... Now, we should say apostles and evangelists and prophets don't exist in the same way that they did in the New Testament era today. We have certainly gifts that are given that are apostolic or prophetic or evangelistic. But those offices were unique in the time of Jesus' day. To be an apostle, you had to be a physical witness of the resurrection. Today, we still have, though, shepherds and teachers. Some scholars would say that's one office. Others would divide it into two. But this office has been given to the church. And this is really important, not to run the show or to be the place through which all ministry has to happen or to be the the, the kind of ultimate yes or no on things. But why has this been given, Paul says in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Some have been given to the church to feed And if you go back to the body imagery, you've got this idea of the body, the the human body growing as it eats and digests good and healthy food. And that's a good metaphor for what the ministry of the word is to be over the people of God. It's to be feeding and nourishing and sustaining in order that it might be equipping the saints, that is all of us, to do the work of ministry. So this isn't about uh, people on the front lines and people behind. This is about something that's given to the church to serve so that the church itself, the people of the church, can go and do the ministry of the church. I think to John 21 when Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. That same idea being communicated there. The fourth thing to say about the church. All of these gifts are given. The church is a place where these gifts have been given. For the purpose of maturing the people, of maturing the body. Verses 13 and 14. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waters, by the waves, and and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. The church is is not a static community. But it's a dynamic community. In which people are growing from immaturity to maturity. Or from childhood to adulthood. The same body metaphor is running through here for Paul. Where we're growing up together. And we're growing up to what? To this mature manhood. The stature of the fullness of Christ. We're growing into the new humanity, the resurrection humanity. Remember, we talked about the fact that God has done a new thing. He's created a new people. In chapter 2, it's the dividing wall has been broken so that Jew and Gentile can come together as one new man, one new person. And that person is to begin to look like Jesus. And that's a journey, and that's a path, and that's a process. And the way that we move down that path ...is by the exercise of the gifts that God has given to each one of us. For the mutual building up of the body. The church is to be like children. Jesus tells us that you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child. We're to be like little children. In our humility. In our trust. And in our wonder at the world. But here we get the kind of negative of not to be like children... In two attributes of children, which is one of ignorance. Children don't know much. And the other is of instability or of being um, easily swayed. And Paul gives this picture and says, we don't want to be like that. We want to grow up. We want to have a a foundation. We want to be stable and security in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We want to, to have a rootedness and to be discriminating in what we take on. What we digest as a people. We're not prone to go with the latest fad, the latest trend in spirituality. We are to grow to maturity underneath the solid food of the word and through the exercising of our gifts in the body. Fifth and finally, in terms of what the church is, the church is a community that's growing to maturity through two primary realities, which are really one, which is truth in love. Verse 15 Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Jesus. This isn't a community without a grasp on truth, but truth is the foundation of this community. The truth of God in Christ, the truth of God's word, and this truth then is lived out. Really, the verb here in in verse 15, it doesn't say speaking the truth, it just kind of says truthing in love. It implies speaking, but could be broader than that, that we're living the truth together in love. It's impossible to love faithfully if we don't have a guide or a a standard of the good that we're pursuing. And so we stand on this reality of truth, and then we move together toward mature, the maturity, the mature new humanity in love. Paul finishes this section by saying, he makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love we're knit together in love so this picture of the church under the body under one head with each person having a gift from christ some being given the gift of the word to nurture all of the gifts growing to maturity in truth and in love so here's the question so then how do we if that is the church then how do we relate to it what does this mean for you and for me Two simple things. First, it means that you belong here in the church. There's a place for you in the people of God. A few years ago, I got invited to go to a conference down in Washington, D.C. It was a men's gathering and it was huge. Probably about 800 men that were gathered together for the weekend... And I was a relative outsider. And it was so strange to me because it was the first time in a while that I had walked into a a large room of people and felt totally alone. And it didn't just happen like the first night. It happened the whole three days as I went to any different meeting or gathering uh, breakout session. The whole time I felt like I just didn't belong. And I fear that sometimes that's the way people walk in to the church. They see all these people, and they see people who they think know each other, and they feel like, there, there isn't a place for me here. I feel completely on the outside. But what this text teaches is that every one of you has a place in the church, in this body. And you have a place here as you, and that's really significant. It's really easy to think that we should be somebody else. It's really easy to envy the gifts of another. But notice how the gifts are meant to be given to work together. When Paul says at the end of this text. That the whole body with which um, when, when each part is working properly. The gifts aren't competitive. They're not comparative. They've been given according to Christ's gift to each one of you. And we need you here. You belong here. As you. As the unique. Gifted individual that you are and that's harder for some of us and maybe that's easier for some of us but for all of us we belong and we belong as who we are that's the first point so how do we relate to this thing called the church well first we belong to it as who we are and the second thing that this means for our lives is it means that each one of you is needed here. The goal, remember, is maturity. The goal is to grow up. And I just read that part about each part working properly. Each one of us is needed. And he- There are models of the church, and this is why I said if some of you have been around the church for a long time, you've got these sort of default answers to this question, what is the church? There are models, very prevalent models of the church that suggest that what the church is, is it's a bunch of professional people who work really hard to put on a worship experience that meets your emotional capacity and needs and tingles you in the right way so that you can enjoy that experience and then go out and do the rest of your life as you see fit. And then you can come back the next Sunday and you can get the same experience and go on and do the rest of your life. That's a very prevalent model of the church. It just doesn't fit with the Bible. But it fits a lot with our consumer culture. Where suddenly we've turned the church into unknown consumers who can check in and check out of a service rather into very known and intimate partners. Who get, a, who get acquainted and engaged with one another's lives. It's easy too sometimes when I talked earlier about some have been given this gift and calling to proclaim the word. It's easy sometimes to think that they're the ones who are doing the work of the church. And that plays into the same problem. Which this earliest glimpse into what the church is has no room for. Every one of you is needed. I think it's really hilarious. Uh, one of the things about athletes, especially football players... You know, these different species are so big and and huge and strong. um, That they can be eliminated from playing by what's called turf toe. Which, as I looked it up, just to kind of, because it's kind of odd. You think, what is that, like fungus on their feet or something? But turf toe is the sprain, it's it's the sprain of the ligaments around the big toe. And it's fascinating to me that these huge strong men who are meant to play this really tough game can't go out onto the field... Because the tiny little ligaments that are attaching their big toe to their foot are hurting. When I say that you're needed here, you might be the ligament on the big toe. I don't know. But we desperately need you to play that part because otherwise we can't do what we're called to do. It's that significant. No one is insignificant in this picture of the church. You're needed and you're needed to jump in and to play the part. As a known and active and engaged partner who's doing the ministry of the church. That's all of us doing the work. The ministry of the church with the gifts that we've been given. Partnering in the service of God. This is another way of when we think about how needed each one of us is. This strengthens the call to unity that we looked at two weeks ago. When we started the series again back in Ephesians. You can see why Paul urges us to have humility. To bear with one another. To be patient. To make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Because we need each other to grow up to maturity. Each one of us is needed. Now let me say this. If the church is to be the new humanity. If the church is God's. If if the church is, is a picture of the future in the midst of the present day, then it would make sense, right, that what the church is and how we're supposed to relate to it actually addresses the cries of the human heart. It would make sense that the new humanity that God is making actually speaks to something that beats deep within us. And there are two things that beat deep within each one of us. One is I want to belong. And the second is I want to be needed. You belong here, and we need you. You are needed here. So let me close by just saying, so what does it take to do this? What does it take to belong and be needed? What does it take to embody this vision that we get of the church in Ephesians 4? Let me just give you three things briefly. It requires relationships. It requires relationships that go beyond the social. Or the casual. It requires relationships that go deeper than just a common interest. In something unrelated to the kingdom of God. It requires relationships that enable a platform to speak the truth in love to one another. To be vulnerable. To be known. To know. To become mutual burdens to one another bearing one another's burdens. It requires relationships. It requires commitment. It requires commitment. We're really afraid of this. We are so afraid of commitment in our culture. And here's why, I think. We're afraid of commitment because we believe the cultural position, which is that in order to flourish and to be alive, you have to be as free as, As possible so that you can do what shows what what presents itself. In other words, don't limit your options. But stay as free as you can from, from burdensome commitments. So that you can be truly alive. This picture of the church is a picture of radical commitment, of being put together in a body. They can't function rightly without the big toe ligament working well. And we don't really understand this in our culture. But Jesus calls us to something different. And he says, you know, if you really want to live, if you want to be alive. Then give yourself away. Bond yourself. To real people. To a real community that's messy, that's boring, that's mundane, and that doesn't always make you feel good. Bond yourself. And by pouring your life out in that way, in a sense by taking up your cross and denying yourself, you'll actually come to live. This kind of community requires commitment. And the third thing it requires is courage. And this is different for all of us. This would be unique depending upon how you enter into a community like this. The courage to serve. Perhaps the courage to allow yourself to be served. To allow yourself to be vulnerable. The courage to listen for some of us. Some of us need the courage to speak. The courage to be who God made us to be. Instead of trying to be someone we think we should be. It's a lot easier and uh, safer to stay isolated which is the norm, but it's so much richer to step into those relationships and that commitment and to be engaged. So why would we do this? And it's it's simple, really. Why would we relate to the church in this way, in relationships and commitment and courage, belonging and being needed? It's because this is the way to walk worthily. Remember that phrase? We talked about how our life needs to balance the grace and the gift and the bounty that God has given to us. Well, Paul's still in that same thought. That thought of walking worldly controls the rest of Ephesians. And it's by jumping in in this way to the community that is the church and beginning to get engaged in real and tangible ways in relationships in this community, that we do get to grow to full maturity in Christ, that we do begin together to look and walk worthily of the calling with which we've been called. This is the way to respond to the overwhelming grace of God. It's not flashy. Not necessarily going to bring the spotlight onto our lives but it's God's radical invitation to you and to me to become the new humanity, to practice resurrection, to grow to maturity. And it's deeply, deeply, deeply satisfying because it makes us fully alive. Amen.